My name is Patricia Kathleen, and this podcast series will contain interviews I conduct with female and female-identified entrepreneurs, founders, co-founders, business owners, and industry gurus. These podcasts speak with women and women-identified individuals across all industries in order to shed light for those just getting into the entrepreneurial game as well as those deeply embedded within it. Histories, current companies, and lessons learned are explored in the conversations I have with these insightful and talented powerhouses. The series is designed to investigate a female and female-identified perspective in what has largely been a male-dominated industry in the USA to date. I look forward to contributing to the national dialogue about the long overdue change of women in American business arenas and in particular entrepreneurial roles. You can contact me via my media company website, wild.agency, that's W-I-L-D-E dot agency, or my personal website, patriciakathleen.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's start the conversation. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. This is your host, Patricia, and today I am sitting down with Susanna Pareto Swap. She is founder and executive director at Vanguard Culture. You can locate Vanguard Culture at vanguardculture.org. That is V-A-N-G-U-A-R-D culture.org. Welcome, Susanna. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. I can't wait to get into um, kind of all about Vanguard culture. It's one of my new favorite endeavors in looking at um, the city of San Diego. Really quickly for everyone listening, I'm going to give you a quick roadmap of today's podcast. It follows the same trajectory as all of the podcasts in this series. And then I will read a brief bio on Susanna and begin peppering her with questions. First, we're going to look at the academic background of Susanna and her early professional life. Then we'll start unpacking Vanguard culture. Um, when it was launched, how it was founded, the changes that it's gone through. I know it had a change over into a 501c3. We'll get into that. Um, how it's structured, what the growth has been. They have had an incredibly wild and successful year. We'll get into some of those things. We'll talk about the ethos of the company and its goal. And um, then we'll kind of look at the areas that they specialize in and what they're moving towards. Then we'll turn over into the calendar that they have for 2020 over the next year and um, any goals kind of built within that year and challenges that they might see, all of those good things. And we'll wrap everything up with advice that Susana has regarding those looking to get involved with Vanguard culture or simply mirror some of your steps after um, her own progress and success. So a quick bio on Susana. Susana Pareto Swap has over 20 years of experience as an arts administrator, actor, jazz vocalist, arts advocate, and public relations specialist. While working for the San Diego International Airport Art Program, she curated over 80 exhibitions with some of San Diego's best museums, artists, and galleries, as well as a fantastic roster of talent for its performing arts series. She has previously served on the board of the San Diego Art Institute as vice president of the Alliance Frances de San Diego, Vice President of the San Diego Repertory Theater, President of the National City Public Art Committee, and Vice Chair on the Port of San Diego's Public Art Committee. Susana's passion for the visual, performing, and culinary arts has taken her 
to over 15 countries and inspired her to create an organization that aims to bring people together across different backgrounds, interests, and creative professions. So this is so exciting, Susanna. I cannot wait to dive into some of this, but will you start us um, a little bit back in your history with uh, telling us a bit about your academic background, which I know is prolific, and early professional life following that? Thank you. Uh, so I started in the theater. That's my original training and background. I studied at the Royal National Theater in London. Um, I taught here at the Globe for Globe in San Diego for uh, five years, uh, working with youth and uh, teaching art, doing arts education as well as PR and marketing. And <clears throat> and so my original goal was to be an actor and that's, you know, you didn't need a degree at that time, any time to be an actor. So I just did a lot of training locally and then I ended up after experiencing London and that fantastic sort of mecca of arts and culture and theater, I came back to San Diego and it felt like a little tiny town all of a sudden. <laughs> so <clears throat> not too shortly after, a few months later, I sold all my possessions, sold my car and I moved to New York. Excellent. And I lived there for uh, close to two years. I happened to have been there, uh, luckily not in the city itself. I was in New Jersey at the time, but uh, when September 11th happened. Mm -hmm. And that moment was really pivotal in um, a lot of people changed their course in, in life, their life paths. Sometimes people who were accountants became musicians and vice versa. You know, they decided to do just different things with their lives. Yeah. I, I stayed there thinking that um, I still wanted to do that. I'm, I was still going to give it a good shot. So I stayed another year and a half um, afterward. But increasingly, I felt this need to... I, I, all of the plays that I had ever been in had sort of a political undertone to them or they had a message where I felt like they were changing, you know, societal norms in some way. They were affecting positive change in some way. Um, but I didn't realize until I was there in this very tense moment in history that I wanted to change the world. And here's me, my young, you know, 19, 20 year old self thinking I was going to change the world. So I came back to San Diego, um, <clears throat> deciding to, uh, start, uh, I started a degree in international security and conflict resolution at San Diego state. Mm -hmm. I stayed there for about two minutes um, <laughs> because, because I, unfortunately, you know, given the, the political climate and the world, the world as it was, I'm not sure how many people will even remember that, but at the time, the people mm. who were in that program, the ISCOR program at San Diego state, many of them just felt like they were there what I believe to be for the wrong reasons. Um, you know, they, I heard a lot of really horrible things while I was there and I switched over to humanities right away. Mm -hmm. I knew that that was not my world and humanities was great for me. It was perfect. It was the study of the greatest of human achievements, you know, in, in art history and music and in dance and theater and architecture and in even world religions. I had an opportunity to study the, um, you know, five holy, the holy books of the five major religions and just became very fascinated with the human condition. And I already was fascinated with it, with my theater training. It's, it's what we do. We analyze the human condition. Um, so I finished, I finished that up and, and still alongside started getting involved in politics. So I worked on a local mayoral campaign. I worked on a congressional campaign and somehow slowly started getting involved through that in the arts, but in city government. 
um, that's when I became involved with the Ports Public Art Committee and the National City Public Art Committee, just sort of seeing how city and government can also intersect with the arts and culture community. Yeah. And I learned a lot from that experience. That was a, that was a big part of my growth as an arts administrator, as a leader, you know, arts, arts advocate. Um, through the years, I've had other opportunities to, uh, you know, continue my sort of arts administrative knowledge um, through the DeVos Institute of Arts Management, you know, learning uh, this, which is part of my training and the way that I apply my business practices as an arts administrator is the, the cycle. It's a, it's a program called the cycle that I uh, participated in. I had an incredible opportunity to study at the, at the Université de, de Sorbonne, of the Sorbonne in Paris, and also the Ecole de Louvre. So I studied um, uh, film history and video art at the uh, University of the Louvre. Many people don't know they have a university there, but it was, it was uh, life-changing, yeah. life-changing. Just rocked my world, really. Um, I was studying just... I mean, I, I already had my humanities degree, much of the knowledge I had already acquired, but now it was all in French <laughs> and yeah. I had to do. And so it was just like starting from scratch, but it was so exciting. And at that point I was already in my early thirties and I thought, this is it. This is going to be the last moment that I ever have an opportunity like this, you know? So I milked it. I signed up to um, meetup.com. It happens to exist in Paris as well. And I went every single night, every single day I was doing something. I was going to spoken yeah. word. I was doing jazz jam sessions. I was, you know, doing a little nice. bit of everything every night. Um, and that experience was kind of the impetus that, um, you know, gave me inspiration to start Vanguard Culture, which I can get into a little bit later. Um, but it was, it was something that, um, it was a, it was a an experience that allowed me to understand what the process of creative collaboration and being open minded and and sort of having a giving energy about mm -hmm. sharing resources um, one of those experiences was a dinner party called an artiste à la table which is an artist at the table um, which we recreated here in San Diego um, and that allowed me the opportunity to meet this incredible uh, leader, um, Nic Nicolas Legasso Laguerre. He was the he was the director of the Espace Pierre Cardin. So Pierre Cardin, the label, has a incredible uh, event space in Paris. Yeah. Um, they do incredible art shows and fashion shows and performances and all these wonderful things. And he was just the most humble, coolest, simple kind of human, yes. you know, yeah. but if, but if somebody would have told me, you know, go talk to that man, the director of the Spas Pierre Cardin, I would have been so incredibly intimidated. There's no way I would have done it. But this opportunity of, you know, paying 50 euro or 60 euro, whatever I paid for that dinner party and getting to sit down at a table with him and meet him as a human and realize he's just a guy, mm -hmm. you know, there was something sure. very humanizing about that whole experience and then he even uh spent some time with me the next day and toured me through the space it was just a really cool moment and i thought to myself you know through all these experiences that i've had uh i know a lot of people like that you know i i started in the theater but i'm mm -hmm. also a jazz vocalist um and through these experiences having come back to san diego i ended up 
working as a curator. Um, so suddenly I was connected to, you know, the visual arts, the performing arts, mm-hmm. um, visual gallerists, you know, uh, museum people. And I started to get to know these wonderful creative industry leaders. And I thought, wow, you know, I don't think the community knows how great these people are and how very accessible they really are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that was kind of the very, very beginnings of Vanguard culture. And yeah, how- I want to climb into that. And I kind of want to preface this with, it's been a long, torturous thought of mine for well over a decade as an art historian um, who's been you know, deeply in, embedded in the trenches of academia and things like that. One of the most difficult things about the ivory tower for me is that it's a disconnect. There is an incredible ravine between the theory and, um, and, and the beautiful you know, knowledge that you acquire, particularly within arts and art history and all of that at a university or an academic level. And then the application into society, it seems it's just two different beasts. You know, it's completely the, the concept of integrating it into, for me, the polar opposite of everything you study academically about art and art history is government. And so, and, and you having this history of getting into where government and the arts meet, you know, there's, there's foundations and there's grants and, but the people that sometimes decide those things, the people that get involved in those areas, they're not lucrative careers frequently. And um, it's funny how little understanding they might have or history with, you know, artistic endeavors. And so not only is it marred with a, a miss and discommunication to begin with, but oftentimes I think that people involved, at least in the history of what I've seen have been, um, a little undereducated themselves. And so I think it's fantastic. And what I do believe when I looked at Vanguard culture, when I was researching it, is that I, I truly believe for the first time it's provided a platform that is bridging that like wicked divide between, you know, these his, histories and references um, in academia and even museums that try to do that like public education divide. There's entire, you know, um, employee like careers based on this kind of an, an education for all different levels for children and things like that. But Vanguard culture seems to really be bringing um, a lot of the information and representations like you're talking about individuals um, on this incredible platform to the community. So I want to I want to turn straight to it, but I will say that that was a perfect um, segue that you had right there because I do believe that you know it takes a connector. I hate that term, but that you know that everyone loves it in entrepreneurship. But connecting those people and that thing, it takes a conduit, and you know it takes people like you that will reach from one area into another. And I think it's rare to have someone who's aware of. of the, uh, the political level where art is contained and then the other where, you know, you have the artists and the art in um, academic history. I want to start off with um, the boring basics um, of Vanguard culture. So we get those out of the way, um, namely when it was launched. And I know it wasn't originally launched as a 501c3 nonprofit and who founded it. Did you take any funding or did you bootstrap? So let's start with those four. Uh, so the organization was founded in 2012, um, shortly after returning from Paris with this artist at the table sort of concept. And um, my goal was because of all, all of these 
lives I had lived uh, as a you know musician, vocalist, as a as an actor, um, and then as a curator, um, and and ha having also curated a performing arts series. So suddenly I had all these contacts of incredible creatives um, from dance and theater and film and music and visual arts and galleries. Um, because of that, I realized one thing is that they have a lot in common and no one is talking to each other, to one another. They're all in their little silos and their own little bubbles, promoting and promoting and promoting to the same list over and over again, to mm -hmm. the same people over and again, and rarely cross collaborating. Now we're talking about, you know, when this started, you know, 15 years ago, more than 16 years ago. What is it? 17? <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, you know, so, so that, that kind of where, where I was at my, at that point in my life, you know, thinking about, I feel like I need to, I have this incredible list. So what do I do with it? You know, it has to be a resource to someone, um, because surely they don't have it, you know, they don't have each other's contact information or they're not collaborating or they're not working together. So I just started this very little series uh, called the Foodie Soiree, and its entire intention was to bring creatives together in the same place at the same time across different industries. And all it was was this sort of potluck style, bring something to share, and if you are a musician, bring your instrument. If you're a poet, bring your spoken word. If you are, you know, a dancer, share a little something with us. And and these were the who's who and are the who's who of San Diego's arts and culture, the administrators, the dancers. Um, so it started very casual and somehow it just kind of <laughs> ran off and became something really incredible. Um, artists, yeah. Thank, like, thank goodness. I mean, yes. it's, it's so awesome to have something like that not take off would have been heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been wonderful. Um, so some of these foodie stories, they all take place in the homes of, of the like private residences. We limit it to the first 50 people that RSVP. Um, and they, even though we have, you know, a couple thousand of, uh, creative industry people on our list, we limit it to the first 50 so that there's real engagement, real connections happening. Yeah. We've had world-class opera singers that have performed at Carnegie Hall and the Sydney Opera House and Paris Opera House performing in our living room. We, you know, we've had, mm -hmm. um, we've had, uh, you know, the California Ballet at one of these events was performing in my living room on, with a director of a museum sitting on the floor on a pillow. You know, and it's so they're very high end. They're very casual at the same time. Um, the quality level, because these are all their peers in the industry, the quality of the performances and the experiences are world class. You know, they're, they're, they're on par with anything you, you would go and pay 50 to $100 for. Um, yeah. So these experiences have grown and that's kind of where that started. I came back from Paris uh, just putting these little events together, thinking, okay, I, I first I just have this incredible resource, this list of, of creatives. Let's just get them in the same room at the same time. And so we did that whole series and I saw real wonderful connections happening. You know, I, I introduced people to one another that ended up opening a gallery together or, you know, partnering on something. So that started happening. And then I thought, well, this just needs to be a digital space because I'm, I'm the middleman between all these different industries that are not talking to each other. I'm receiving invitations to all of their events but they're not receiving them across industries so why don't i create this digital space in the form of a newsletter where i can just 
tell people what I think are the coolest, most interesting, funky things happening in San Diego that you would not be privy to unless you were in the in crowd of their, of their little industry. Yeah. Um, so I started creating this digital newsletter and at first it was with my first thousand or so contacts. We're now at over 16,000 subscribers. We're getting close to 10,000 hits a month on our website. Um, still as an all volunteer organization and somehow the momentum just keeps growing. So it's really, really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to mention sort of the, the issue that you brought up about this sort of ravine um, that exists in, in the arts community with government and, and sort of government support. Um, one of the things that I think is that it's about that is that it's, it's cultural. You know, um, if you, for the, for Parisians, for example, you know, they're walking in on, you know, their lunch hour to the Louvre, for goodness sakes, you know? And so they can be academics and, and continue to sort of apply that in their daily life. It becomes sort of easier. Mm -hmm. Um, San Diego's arts and culture, uh, is very much based on its beautiful weather and, you know, this, this, this wonderful culture that we all pay a lot of money to live in this environment that we pay a lot of money to live in. But what Vanguard Culture aims to do is to broaden the, you know, cultural horizons of people who never have access to these types of uh, arts experiences. So by bringing two industries that typically never intersect, like, you know, film and dance or, uh, you know, vision, even gallerists and museum people don't talk to each other. It's just really wild. Right. I know. (laughs) know, know. I'm exaggerating right? But, you know, generally that's kind of the way it no, is. No, it's true. There's very little cross-pollination in something as social as the arts. It reminds me, like, what you were doing um, with, you know, the your, your firesides or however you're capturing is the old salons with, like, George yeah. Sand and Chopin, yes. you know, in, in Paris and places like that where they were getting artists and even scientists and writers mm-hmm. and poets. These wealthy people would have them all come to their estates for a week or a weekend, you know, that type of a yeah. thing. It sounds like you were doing that on a mini level. And I think that it led to the cross-pollination of, you know, the great thinkers and artists and and alike. And so I think there has been a wild disconnect. And I think you're right. I think it is um, an American thing. And the way that we, you know, have turned away from the arts and not funded them and things like that kind of reiterate that there's a disconnect between those that include art in their life and those that don't. And I think it has a lot to do with socioeconomic representation and a lot of other things. But um, you trying to, you know, cross-pollinate once again, it sounds like it's um, not only like a great endeavor, but it's being incredibly received. You oh, know, yeah. I mean, we've put, together, we've put together events, for example, that had, we brought together a, um, a visual artist, a poet, a scientist, and a chef, and had them all create something inspired by climate change, for example. Mm-hmm. And everyone loves the creative challenge of being put inside of this little box and then having to push the, ed, you know, the, the <laughs> push away on the walls of the, of the box. It's, yeah. it's sort of like they're exploding with creativity. I mean, just to give you an example, that chef, for that specific event, he, you know, he's tasked with creating something inspired by climate change. He happened to have been a um, desert storm vet veteran. So he um, took these little 
very grainy, sandy textured sort of matzo balls that were filled with cheese and pineapple and these delicious flavors that sort of melt in your mouth, but they do have that sandy texture. And that was his interpretation of being in Desert Storm. And then he also had been a part of uh, the rescue efforts in Katrina, um, the Hurricane Katrina. And so he had been belly deep in water. So his interpretation of that was pork belly. (laughs) So it's a very sort of simple thing, but it still engaged him in this internal conversation about how can my culinary practice uh, be representative of, of a, of a concept outside of me, you know? Yeah, Um, absolutely. And we have several things like that. Yeah. We, we do that all the time. We have several things like that. So this, we just uh, completed this past weekend a, a four-part spoken word series with, uh, in partnership with California Poet Laureate Gil Soto. He's a three-time TEDx speaker, just an incredible human being. And the whole series was based off of catalytic moments in history. We did the Roaring Twenties, the 1970s, the 90s, and then this last one was the future. It was uh, designed as a hopeful visioning of the future of art, science, music, fashion that would make the world a better place. And so we brought um, incredible groundbreaking science from the Fleet Science Center um, they, that they curated. We, we brought together the uh, City College's theatrical makeup and special effects class to create nice. hybrid, hybrid humans of the future and creatures of the future. Yeah. Um, we had a psychic artist that was doing readings about your hopeful futures. We had a, a fa- an avant-garde fashion show. And then, of course, his incredible team of spoken word artists, musicians, dancers. So you had people here that every guest here was here for a different reason. You had some people that were here for the fashion. Some people were here for yeah. the culinary aspect. Some people were here for the science, etc. And suddenly they were introduced to an industry that they never would have sought out on their own. You know, suddenly you look over and you're like, babe. I love spoken word. I didn't even know. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we do more of that? Right. That event sounds remarkable. I have not heard of anything that I have been jealous about missing as much as that in the past year. Oh. That's fantastic. I can't. So what I'd like to know is um, how are you, how many people on the ground is it taking? Cause what you just described for me as someone who's had a fashion photography studio, that feels like an endeavor. That feels like a, you know, six months in the planning moment. And so um, I'm wondering how many, um, so when Vanguard Culture switched over to becoming a 501c3, did the structure of it change at all? Or did you kind of just keep your original crew? And right now, how many people are working with you? Mm -hmm. So on the day-to-day administrative side, we have between four and six people that come in and out of the office regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also partnered with Baja Wine and Food who shares the office with us. And so they do their programming alongside us and do a monthly Meet the Winemaker series, um, which has been wonderful. Uh, we have a whole team of 10 writers uh, that work with us remotely to review shows, interview artists, uh, do nice. behind the scenes studio visits, all of that. In fact, last week we, were, uh, we received notice that we won four awards for excellence in journalism from the San Diego Press Club. And as a all-volunteer nonprofit, that's really a big milestone for us. We that's do amazing. Have, yeah, thank you. We do have a couple of um, arts journalism sponsors, the La Jolla Historical Society and the San Diego Symphony, who allow us to give stipends to these writers. So that's fantastic. We're really proud of that. Um, but the administrative side is all volunteer for our events. Uh, we do, you know, pay our contractors for the creative work that they're doing. 
and uh, but the team of folks that are you know at the check-in serving the food not serving the food but you know serving the drinks being ushers all of that those are all volunteers doing that work it's, inc yeah. it's incredible we have just we're so lucky we have such a great team of volunteers that are dedicated they believe in our mission they believe in our cause they believe that creatives have a right to make a living doing the thing that they love and um, you know that the creative industries can be a an economic engine for the region and they are signed on so we're really lucky in that way I think overall we're about just over 30 people um, that wow. we're both off and on, you know. That's small for what you're, I mean, you know, even still for what you're, I mean, putting on and, um, and some of the people that you're bringing together. It's just exciting. It sounds like even people who are, um, you know, attending in any capacity are putting in. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's truly a collaborative effort. It is oh, yeah. a round table of, of what you're talking about, of talent, of, of creatives, of things like that. I don't want to know a world without art. And so, you know, yeah. it's, it's processes like this that, um, we have to keep alive. And like you said, becoming an economic engine and, and these ideas of, you know, you can live as an artist still, as a creative mind. You know, I think that we really need to push that. I've had so many conversations over the past year about the technology industry and a bunch of different things. And I really support all growth and change. And I am, you know, married to an individual who has made his empire there. But um, I just, I think that, that if we, if we, wander too far from um art we're going to hinder every industry known to you know the civilization it's just the truth mm -hmm. it's the creative process that produces vaccines and medicine you know it's it's the creative process that promotes everything across all industry and i think sometimes we become divorced from that yeah. and reintroducing um that it's not you know it's not an oil um paint and canvas and um some white dude standing on a hilltop oh, no. you know art is like no, and it's, it's culinary and it's it's now with today's dynamic you know today's world that we're living you have to be a creative to survive yes you know you have to whether you are in the tech industry or whether you're a scientist you have to still be creative in this new world that we're living in it's really it's a it's a must and you have to be flexible you have to be uh, open-minded willing to work with other uh, you know industries it's it's we're living a very I think just a very momentous moment point in our history as hu in yeah. humanity you know and 2020 it I'm super excited about it I can tell yeah, you yeah let's it. climb into your calendar I'm excited too yeah so uh, each year we theme our season last year it was inspire it was our five-year uh, you know anniversary so all of our events were themed around the five senses uh, we we uh, culminated in this wonderful event called sensorium where we took over 15 condominium lofts of idea one where we have our arts residency um, and 80 artists transformed them with immersive art experiences, all themed around the five senses. There was a fashion show, music, blah, blah, you know, food, drink, all the, the whole works, performances. Um, and that event was featured on National Geographic Channel, which was super exciting for us. Yeah, that's amazing. And then this year, the 2019 season, we called it Catalyst. And Catalyst was sort of a nod to our responsibility to be a catalyst for arts and culture in this, in this region here in, during this residency at Idea One as a part of the greater Idea One District Master Plan. The Idea District is a 35-block master plan 
that aims to bring uh, or attract creatives from the tech industry all the way through the visual and performing arts. And this uh, is in downtown San Diego, California. Mm -hmm. That's right, in the East Village of, of downtown San Diego. Uh-huh. And uh, so Catalyst uh, was, I mean, all of our programming was themed with that in mind to bring uh, two folks together, create something completely new. Um, and then next year, given that it is going to be such a momentous year, it promises to be such a momentous year uh, for a lot of reasons, you know, politically and also climate change and all these sort of human issues that we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. We feel that a it, it was, uh, we had many, many long conversations about what we could theme our year and what was going to be the purpose of next year's season. Um, because as creatives, we have this responsibility to speak to our current times. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, we could, you know, mo a lot of nonprofits could just, or do just, you know, program events that are fun, that'll sell tickets, that'll do what they need to do mm. for, uh, for their mission. But I think that next year, it needs to be grander than that. It needs to be more responsive to what we're living. Yeah. So we're theming uh, next year's season uh, uh, Ripple Effect. And that's not public yet, but, we'll, <laughs> but I'll let you know. <laughs> well, we, you heard it here first. You heard it here first. <laughs> you definitely did hear it first, for sure. So the theme is Rif Ripple Effect. We're calling it a year-long conversation with San Diego's creative community about the human capacity to affect change. Um, and so nice. those conversations, quote-unquote conversations, will be translated through uh, cultural events, through industry workshops, panel discussions. We're, we're hosting two creative industry symposiums uh, featuring San Diego's most notable visual performing and culinary artists, all having this discussion about how their industry has affected positive change or has the potential to affect positive change. And I love that. I have not heard anything that hopeful in a long time, you know, and um, I'm, I'm very big on looking at, at, at hard truths and, and following and staying up on everything. But it's, it's rare that people kind of turn to, so let's talk about a solution, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and I like that positive change um, ripple effect moment. That's, that's a, it's a brave stand. It, it challenges people. And you're right. I would say that it is your responsibility and your duty with uh, the success and the traction you've changed. I believe that every brilliant mind should be tasked with pushing themselves further and making the task harder. And that's what you've done. I think that's fantastic. So you're putting together, how, does, how do people locate this calendar? Is it open to the public? How many of these events are exclusive? Can you tell us more about that? All of our events are open to the public. Uh, they will be on our events calendar uh, at vanguardculture.org. The calendar is not public yet, <laughs> other than mentioning the theme of the season with you just here today. Um, we will be launching that at the end of this year as an announcement, as a formal announcement with our full season intact. In but I can share with you that we have already um, secured programmatic partnerships with several notable uh, arts organization in our 2020 season, including the San Diego Opera, the Natural History Museum, San Diego Italian Film Festival, the Fleet Science Center, again, AHA Wine and Food, um, the Berry Good Foundation, which is focuses on sustainable food practices, um, Tiny Opera House, Rising Arts Leaders, the San Diego Art Prize, and Young Audiences of San Diego, all of these to create professional development workshops, panel discussions, uh, 
for a sort of three-part consideration of our capacity to affect change. The first one would be your uh, personal, you know, capacity to affect personal, uh, a positive change in your personal life. You know, the, the choices that you make on a daily basis as a, as an arts administrator, as a creative you know these these folks who tend to get burned out because we're wearing all hats yeah um and then your the capacity to affect change in, within your community which most arts nonprofits are doing right that's their entire goal and mission mm -hmm. and then on a larger scale like what is your responsibility as a creative industry to affect positive change on a on a national and international scale i mean if you look at this wonderful young lady greta thunberg you know she's just so exciting to me and so inspiring and i just mm -hmm. how you know what is it that we're not tapping into here in san diego that potentially could have that kind of momentum and let's have conversations about it let's bring all these creative industry professionals into the same room at the same time and listen to leaders creative leaders from all these other industries that are not your own uh to see what they have to say and to see if there's any synchronicity in all of that which I know there is because I happen to be in this position of being the middle person between the film and theater and music and visual arts. Um, they're, they're just not aware of how much they actually do have in common. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, and it's a cool three, uh, like a trifecta aspect to take to into 2020 with you. I like that idea of like focusing on those three areas. So um, we're going to wrap up today by talking about um, if, someone came up to you tomorrow who was a female or woman, a woman identified individual, non-binary person. And they said, listen, um, I, I started my career off in acting. I, you know, I went back East, bopped over to London. Um, then I came back after, you know, kind of this monumental historic event. I got involved in academia and the humanities, I studied a bit in Paris. I've done it all. I love the arts and I want to start, um, my own company, I'm thinking about making it a nonprofit. What are the top three pieces of advice right now that you would give that individual? Yeah. Um, first, I would definitely warn them against, against becoming a nonprofit too soon. Before you become a nonprofit, uh, you know, a lot of people think that uh, funding comes easier when you're a nonprofit, and that's, that's their entire purpose of becoming a nonprofit. Oh, well, you know, that way we can raise more money. That's not the case. Um, so take a, take a pause before you, you make that decision for that reason. Number one, you have to have an extraordinary, very dedicated board of directors that are gonna do a lot of the legwork for you. Right. You have to bring together finance people and legal advisors and a team of people who are gonna help you move through the incredible amount of paperwork involved in being a nonprofit, in just existing as a nonprofit. If you don't have that, you're going to get overwhelmed very quickly. And it's, and, and then the other thing too, is that if you, if you're the only one doing that, you end up spending all of your time doing the administrative work and none of your time doing the creative work, which is why right. we started this in the first place. Um, the, what were the other two questions? <laughs> oh no, just the three piece, top three pieces of advice. So we have yeah. warning against becoming a nonprofit too soon. Yeah, the piece, the other piece of advice that I would give, thank you, sorry, is um, that you have, think about collaborating with others who are already doing some of the work that you do. I think there's a, there's a, it's a uh, myth that there isn't enough for everyone to go around. 
it's a myth that uh, you need to hoard your resources or hoard your donors or, you know, not share information with others because they're going to steal it and steal them away from you. A lot of nonprofits do that. um, And it's not fully their fault. I think that the, the way that the commission for arts and culture has funded arts nonprofits in, in the past has created a culture of competition. I definitely mm-hmm. think things are changing to a culture of collaboration. And thanks to a, a new director that we have there, Jonathan Glass, who's been really wonderful and going on this listening tour throughout San Diego County to understand uh, the needs of the, of the arts organizations, things are changing. Um, in fact, the, the San Diego Commission in partnership for arts and culture in partnership with the um, the uh, develop, uh, Re- San Diego Regional uh, Economic Development Corp has uh, launched a a review of the impact of creative industries in San Diego. And so I'm on that advisory board to uh, review the economic impact of, of how, of creative industries. So it's, it's going, that research will then allow us to secure more funding and, you know, refocus where we put our energies in support of San Diego's creative industries. Um, so partnerships are a really big deal. Make sure that you bring that you work with people who are already in your industry and don't be afraid to ask for support. Don't be afraid to share and be, be supportive. Um, the other thing is uh, one of the things that I uh, implement a lot in um, the training that I had um, for a nonprofit arts administration. I also did a, a had a, got a degree at, at USD in their nonprofit academy, their nonprofit um, Nice, you know, arts administrative uh, academy, and um, but the but one thing that I apply is this concept of the cycle, which is um, you start with excellence, and the thing that a lot of nonprofits do because you know you it's like this cart before the horse kind of theory. You have a thousand dollars in the bank, so what do you do with it? Well, we can buy you know fifty bags of balloons, and we can rent ten chairs, and we can do this and this and that, and maybe we can hire give you a stipend to one dancer for a hundred bucks or whatever they're, you know, however they break down this thousand dollars that they have. And so they work backwards from the existing resources they have versus think sitting down with their team and thinking, what would be the coolest, most exciting, most interesting, impactful thing we could do as an organization and start there. And work backwards from there. Give yourself plenty of time to program, to market, to produce, to partner, to secure creative sponsor, uh, cultural sponsors, um, you know, to fundraise so that you can actually reach that goal. Instead, what a, instead of what a lot of organizations do is that they have the thousand dollars and then they want to produce something in a month. And in that month, you know, they don't have time to market it. They don't have time to bring partners to partners together. They're using all of their resources on advertising and things that are really unnecessary. Whereas if you you brought in a whole bunch of different partners that are all all, uh, dedicated or committed to to the success of the event, they're all promoting it to their various audiences, uh, which, you know, allows you to not have to spend that much money on advertising (laughs) and other, in other areas. So partnerships for me are everything. And you didn't, you sort of, um, didn't like the title of a collaborator, but I am absolutely a collaborator. I own that. I own that little badge. It's all I do. And it's, and it's the only way that we can exist. 
Right. I, I think it's connector that I have an issue. Oh, did it connector? Yeah. Co- collaborator, I love. <laughs> and the <laughs> only reason it's connector, I think, is it's like the word Uber in 2002. Everyone just started using it. This is prior to Uber actually coming out. So mm. I'll just go ahead and date myself. But before the car service came out, everyone yeah. started using the word Uber like, oh, she's Uber nice. And it just became yeah, yeah. This, this colloquialism that I either embrace, and I tend to embrace um, particularly um, colloquialisms and, and verbiage and things like vernacular of the youth. I love it. I think it's poetic. I love the mm-hmm. young mind. But something about the word Uber is the same way that the word um, connector mm-hmm. has me like a little, like everyone's like, she's, he's a connector. She's a connector. I'm like, ah, we all is should. Sort of, do they, excuse my dating myself, because I, ha- I haven't heard that as a, as a trendy word, but is that because of the influencer community that you don't like the world the word connector um I'm not sure I think it's been described too much to to mean anything it's like the word mentor Mm -hmm. I no longer know what people are referring to you know people can talk about their grocer as their mentor at this point like I just don't at one point it used to hold kind of a brevity at least in like um, the academic community or apprenticeship models Mm -hmm. um, back in the day of how knowledge was being passed down you know, mentors were these very sage individuals that um, people took a lot of stock in. And um, now I think the word is is kind of casually used to describe yeah. someone that you're learning something from. Yeah. So, um, but I'm an academic nerd. So I care about how we're defining things. No, I don't mind connector. And I certainly love the word collaborator. Oh, good. Um, and, I, uh, and I think that you're both in the best possible way. <laughs> So to, to summarize you, if I would be so bold, um, your top three pieces of advice is that you would warn um, those against becoming a nonprofit too soon. There's a lot of arduous logistics that will overwhelm the novice. So take your time and make sure you have all your ducks in a row. Think about collaborating is the second one. Uh, there's a bad stigma and myth about um, uh, you know how it hurts and people are hoarding resources and contacts and that's kind of the antithetical um, ethos to 501c3. And the third one is start with excellence and enjoy a good collaboration and make sure that you begin with um, the most excellent uh, resources that you can. Yeah. That's awesome. I love those three pieces. I have never heard anyone, um, it's it's an inundated industry or not inundated, it, it, mentally, it's hard to think about um, nonprofits. And I never hear anyone kind of summarize them. You know, I've never seen a cliff notes of nonprofits because it is such a, it's still kind of a wild west kingdom. You know, you can kind of do so many different things, but you have clearly um, established yourself as a pillar of someone who has done it right. And I think that your advice gleans um, a great deal of your knowledge and um, what you did indeed do right. And therefore the history of Vanguard culture is not surprising. The wild success rides you guys have had over the past couple of years, and I'm sure you're going to experience this next year is due to just kind of your um, devout attention and uh, sage wisdom. I um, I really hope that we can circle back around and interview you guys next year because I can't wait to um, find out more. I'm going to start having coffee in your courtyard. So we'll just hang yes. out anyway. <laughs> I would love that. Uh, I want to thank you so much, Susana, for your time today. Um, I know you're beyond busy and I really appreciate you sitting down with us. I know your story and your candor is just going to be so well received and I really appreciate everything that you've said today. Thank you, Patricia. And thank you for this podcast. Thank you for doing what you do. I think women entrepreneurs really need to hear these voices uh, from all industries. And it's so much appreciated and so much needed. So 
Absolutely. It was my pleasure. And um, to everyone listening, uh, thank you for your time. And until we speak again, remember to always bet on yourself. Sancho. Thank you.